Hi there, Duncan Green here with the weekly roundup of posts on From Poverty to Power. I'm doing this on my phone instead of my normal machine in a hotel in Nairobi because I've just finished a really fun four-day training session for for UN and senior INGO staff and national NGOs on influencing, which is one of my new programs, uh, working with a great team at the LSE, uh, and it went really well, so I'm in a very good mood. But I have a flight to catch tonight, and I'm going to be in the air uh, for a long time, so I thought I'd try and record it on my phone and see if it works. Fingers crossed. So the first post was uh, links I liked. Uh, there was all the usual stuff, but I think the the one I would pick up was actually a really funny spoof, a parody of every Tudor history documentary by a, a, a woman with the wonderful uh, stage name of Suzanne Primate. And she, uh, and she just sort of basically mocks the exaggerated efforts that historians make to make their subject interesting on television. And I think it's really well done. So just point to that. Um, the next post is a great overview of the past, present and future of war and the humanitarian system. And it's a bit of an odd one because I've been teaching with the author all week. His name is Hugo Slim and he's a bit of a uh, a legend in humanitarian circles and peace peace circles. And he's written a really, really good book. Uh, it's got a very weird title, Solferino 21, Warfare Civilians and Humanitarians in the 21st Century. And that's a reference to Henri Donant's book about the bloody 1859 Battle of Solferino. So that book, and uh, uh, he wrote a book about that battle and his activism is credited with founding much of modern humanitarianism, starting with the Red Cross. So Slim was asked to write a reflection for its 160th anniversary um, of the book coming out, and this is the result. And it is superb. I mean, um, it's for, if you're not familiar with the history, present and potentially future of the humanitarian sector, it's hard to think of a better thing to read. It's very personal. It's sometimes iconoclastic. Uh, it's beautifully written. I just learned loads from reading it. Uh, it's divided into three big chunks, warfare, civilians, and the humanitarian system. And the first thing I learned was that civilians is a word that only emerged after World War I. Uh, they didn't call them that before. Um, there's a great sense of historical sweep and evolution and some powerful writing. How about this then? Most people experience war as poverty, not as battle. It is the civilian, not the wounded soldier who stands at the centre of the moral frame we put around war. My favourite section, although I'm not sure I can use the word favourite, was the first one on war. It's a brilliant summary of the nature of warfare in the early 21st century and how it's likely to evolve. And Slim has a kind of unflinching gaze on violence and a great grasp of strategy. And I, chatting to him here in Nairobi, I realised this may have something to do with his family background. His father commanded the SAS, the elite um, uh, army unit in the, in the British Army and his grandfather led the British World War II campaign in Burma, General Slim. So I think he's probably just heard military strategy at the table since he was a kid. And he seems as keen to understand as to condemn. Another quote, war remains extremely resilient as a political strategy. Great powers and billions of ordinary people still believe in war. His take on next generation warfare is seriously scary. He predicts a return to big war between major powers, and this was all written before Ukraine. Foreseeing warfare interwoven with other crises like climate change 
and delving into the ethical and practical challenges promoted by warfare involving AI-driven uh, machines. So as an example, what if a largely autonomous warbot has to make a sudden judgment call in a morally ambiguous situation? Perhaps it is hit by enemy fire, begins to lose control, and has a choice between crashing into a school or a busy supermarket. Wow. And he, he sort of works through these dilemmas brilliantly. Oddly, the civilian section is the weakest. And I think, it, talking to Hugo, I think maybe it's because he'd already written a book on this called Killing Civilians. It's got a good statistical overview, but it's rather, it paints a sort of binary world of civilians and aid agencies and doesn't say much about politics, public authority, the role of faith organisations, diasporas, or civilian-led violence. <clears throat> the final section on humanitarians is a brilliant primer for anyone who's coming new to the field, as I am a bit, with this new training course. He has been in this for decades. He lives and breathes the humanitarian system. He knows all its intricacies and arcane disputes. He is a believer in the system, although a critical one, in the argues that today's international system has actually saved millions of lives. And he contrasts, for example, contemporary conflicts like Syria with the massacre uh, in the uh, about 100 years previous to the Syrian conflict of the Armenians, which occurred in a similar part of the world, and just shows how much fewer, how many fewer people are being killed these days. But he has deep misgivings about several aspects of the way the humanitarian system has evolved. He's very he's a passionate advocate of localization, um, uh, but he's also worried about the way humanitarianism uh, pursues change, increasingly on multiple fronts, not just saving lives, but essentially advocating some, for something like Western welfare states and human rights at a granular granular level. And he says this has made humanitarian aid increasingly ambitious, complicated, expensive, and utopian. Okay, so much for the critique. What's he proposing? He's proposing three goals for humanitarianism, global coverage, delivery by national institutions, and simple aid. Uh, simple aid, he's a big fan of cash transfers and small grants to local organizations. Global coverage, he means finding ways of working along non-Western forms of humanitarianism, even if they don't sign up to everything in your increasingly long list, shopping list of rights and uh, duties. Um, so you basically have to be able to develop a multipolar world where China, India, Russia and mid-level powers like Turkey all have different approaches but work together. And delivery by national institutions involves changing mindsets away from expeditionary humanitarianism. Wonderful phrase. That focuses on individual rights and from helping individuals in need of supporting in need to supporting organisations. And those need to be local ones. So I think this book is absolutely fantastic and I do recommend to anyone who wants to know more about the humanitarian system. Third post of the week was a piece of nice and encouraging research about this adaptive management business that I've been writing a lot about. Uh, it's, it's, it's called How Do NGO Staff and Partners Experience Adaptive Programming? Um, and I've been having a lot of doubts about adaptive management for reasons I've gone into in previous podcasts. I'm not going to rehearse that. But this is a new study from Christian Aid Ireland. Uh, it's called The Difference Learning Makes, Factors That Enable or Inhibit Adaptive Programming. It's really good. They've been using a deliberate adaptive approach since 2019. Um, and uh, here's a few paragraphs from the executive summary, but I do urge you to read the paper. This study has found evidence and multiple examples 
that show adaptive programming contributed to better development outcomes. The main reason cited were that these, have, that these were made possible both from improvements to programming strategies based on proactive reflection and learning, as well as those that stem from the reactive capacity of adaptive programs to change course in response to unanticipated changes in operating conditions. Reading this, I have to say, it could be a bit more engagingly written. This study found that adaptive programming has enabled better development practice where organisations are enhancing their skills to better respond and be flexible to contextual challenges. 72% of partners surveyed described adaptive programming as the most useful approach to programme management that they have used. The, the programme approach has meant that Christian Aid and partner staff were better able to explore the significance of change. Uh, lost it on my screen, sorry. Um, the significance of change in the context and their contributions to them. It also enabled spaces for meaningful engagement with communities. The study also found that adaptive programming has supported flexible delivery. This led to better outcomes. The main focus has been the analysis of nine factors that can determine the effectiveness and impact, or otherwise, of using an adaptive approach. And these are leadership, organisational culture, conceptual understanding, staff capacities, partnership approaches, participation, methods and tools, administrative procedures, and finally, the operating context. Just scrolling down again. Together, these provide an analytical framework for assessing an organisation's adaptive scope. So that's quite interesting. They've come up with a tool which can actually measure how, much, how adaptive organisations are. There are also some great examples from their work. I'll just give you a couple. So in Sierra Leone, several iterations of strategy testing have led to improved measures for mitigating conflict between cattle herders and crop farmers. Reflecting on the failure of traditional conflict resolution methods led by paramount chiefs to stem the violence, the partner organisation with representatives of farmers and cattle herders formed a cattle settlement committee which proposed their own conflict resolution strategy, including enacting a local bylaw to regulate land use. These strategies have led to a reduction in conflict, peaceful cohabitation between the groups and the scaling up of the initiative into a district-wide bylaw. It has also led to an increase of cultivated land and harvest. And from Zimbabwe, one partner organisation realised during reflection and learning sessions that their focus on training community members as environmental monitors was not working well because of the barriers that community members faced to participation. This exclusion was largely due to gatekeeping by traditional leaders who sometimes received financial compensation from mining companies. The strategy was adapt, adopted, uh, adapted sorry, to include these leaders in training who could then hear and be accountable to communities' perspective on mining and contribute to greater buy-in to monitoring efforts. As a result, the level of community participation in environmental monitoring efforts has been much higher. So that's very good, um, and it's going straight on my LSE reading list uh, on a, for, the less, for the class on adaptive management. Finally, <clears throat> back to uh, a, a piece of work which I've been involved with for the last couple of years. Uh, it's called Emergent Agency in a Time of COVID, and it's an LSE-funded work at Oxfam uh, looking at how social movements and activists have responded to the pandemic. And we're now pulling together the findings of those two years um, lots of pod, lots of conversations, lots of blogs, lots of uh, academic journal articles, and this one's a podcast. 
And this is a guest post by Filippo Artuso and Barbara Van Passen, so, who introducing a new episode on the People versus Inequality podcast, which Barbara set up recently. While well, many of us were living through the pandemic on interminable Zoom calls or watching Netflix, activists and change makers around the world were finding new and innovative ways to respond to the pandemic. The curiosity to learn how these responses were growing in civil society and what we could learn from them is what pushed the emergent agency research that lots of you have been following on this blog. During the research, we had insightful conversations about the dilemmas and challenges that social movements, activists and other changemakers faced during the pandemic. And now Oxfam and the People vs Inequality podcast are sharing these lived experiences in the coming weeks. We will highlight the stories of four changemakers that responded to the pandemic in new and innovative ways, from social entrepreneurs to organisers and movement leaders. We start with Rosaline Orwa, an award-winning advocate for widows and the founder of the Rona Foundation. When she became a widow at a young age, she soon realised just how much discrimination widows face and the importance of supporting and championing the rights of widows across Kenya, where I am. In our conversation with Rosalind, we tackle some pressing questions. How were widows affected during the pandemic? How did they respond and adapt? In which, uh, and here's some quotes from Rosalind. I am a reflection of how a widow can heal and thrive. I am a reflection of how windows can still remain invisible. I presume that means widows. Despite the achievements we made, I am still invisible in very many spaces. One of the, one of the things that shocked us was that every gender conversation was on Zoom. For two years, it was all online. And what this actually meant was that rural widows were left behind even more. Our widows deserve to be seen, to be heard, because they're the only ones there. We are talking about a community with 80% dead men. The women are at the centre of the socio-economic development in this community. The women are the ones raising this community. And that's a particular community she was talking about there. So from sending food on overloaded buses and mentoring young women in the community to closing a deal with the police after an arrest, Rosaline vividly shares the stories and experiences from her community. She has been working tirelessly in her community and globally to reclaim the agency of the widows to take up their seat at the table, advocating for their needs and of the community at large. Rosalind shows us what emergent agency is all about and how incredibly important this is for women facing multiple and intersecting forms of discrimination. She also challenges the international community and especially funders to build on the trust and leadership of widows and to overcome their biases. So that's the end of that uh, podcast and the end of this week. And I will see you uh, soon. I'm going to be jumping on a plane and I'll be back in the normal way next week. Have a good weekend, everybody.